Just as we get there, I just want to make a couple other announcements as well. Sorry, Ernie, there is no Sunday school today. That's my fault. Long weekend. I know. I, that's, that's on me. So don't be too hard on Ernie. That mistake is mine. Or you can be hard on him, but that's okay, but it, that's still, that mistake is mine. Uh, one kind of good, kind of exciting kind of thing moving forward, and then a couple of hard things. Um, one, the good thing, uh, I was having coffee with uh, someone this week, uh, Sebastian, who's been part of our church for a little while. He's at the very back there in the red shirt. Give a little wave, Sebastian, there you go. Um, and we were talking about um, kind of just some unique ways and uh, what we could do to bring honor to God, and, and he's passionate about music. Uh, if you want to have a conversation about what concert he has not been to, that's a very short list, but the concerts he has been to is lots. Uh, and he'd like to kind of get organized with a, a little bit of a kind of a worship night. Um, so if you would like to play or sing or or you like to play or sing but not in front of people, and you would like to do that just, you know, with just a few people. Uh, we're going to be trying to figure out what that might look like in the coming summer months here. So I'm going to, he's in charge. I'm not in charge at all. So go talk to him after. Uh, if you don't know him because he's, he's fairly new to our community, then sit down and have a chat with him, and we'll, we'll try and get that going. Uh, that's the good. The hard, as, as Ernie mentioned, is, is another death. Um, Nicole's mom passed away just, just recently, and then now Albert, and, and then as well, I don't know if, if many of you saw this, but um, Pastor Tim Keller, who's probably one of the most influential leaders in my life, uh, passed away this week as well from cancer. And so it's just been a heavy uh, and a hard week in that. And so I thought as we began here, um, before we read our text, just that we would spend just a little bit of time in prayer praying for those who are grieving. Um, it's never easy to go through loss. It's painful, it's hard, and, uh, and yet in the midst of it all, God is, is doing amazing things. And so let's, uh, let's just bow and let's, let's lift these folks up who are hurting. God, we know, that, we know that because of what we read in the very beginning pages of the Bible, that the death is a reality that all of us have to face. But just because we know that intellectually doesn't make it any easier for us to go through when loved ones pass on. And so, God, we pray this morning for Nicole and for her family. Pray for the Moser family and we pray for the Keller family. God, those who are grieving right now and, and, and potentially many others that we don't know of, we just pray that you would comfort them, that as it says in Philippians, that the peace that passes all understanding, your peace that does not make sense in the midst of circumstance, would be known to them and that they would feel that. That they would know that they are loved and cared for by family, by friends, but most importantly by you. And so would you comfort them in these days? Would you give them the strength that they need? And would you give us as their friends and as their family, wisdom with what to say, maybe not even to say anything, but to just show up and be there? Would they know that they have church family around them that loves them and cares for them? So God, we just pray for your comfort in those situations this morning. Amen. All right, so you can flip to 21 of Exodus. Now here is... This is one of the, 
the great and hard things about what's called uh, expositional preaching or expository preaching is, is what we do in this church, by and large, is we, we pick a book of the Bible and we start at the beginning of it and we work our way through it. And um, one of the benefits of that for you, and maybe not for me as much, is that when it comes to hard texts like this, this morning, we can't just skip it and ignore it because you know what's coming. And so there's some really difficult uh, seemingly strange and unusual and perhaps even offensive at first laws that are given in uh, Exodus 21, 22, and 23. And so we're not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to highlight some of the really uncomfortable, um, challenging ones and try and help us read them within the context in which they fall so that we can actually let the Bible speak to what it's trying to teach us rather than uh, imposing our view or our culture or our expectation on the text. But before we do that, I need to clarify last week again in Exodus 20, the first kind of 21 verses, we read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, of course, are a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture to many, many people. Um, Some of us have many of those commands memorized. Uh, Maybe you don't have all ten memorized, but you can name a few of them for sure. But as I tried to explain last week is, is these commandments were never given by God as a list of here's 10 things to do, and if you follow these 10 things, then you get to go to heaven. That is not the intent in which they're there for. And, and really, if you think about it kind of in a, in a narrative sense right from the beginning, is if God gave Adam and Eve only one rule in the Garden of Eden, and they couldn't obey that, then why would God give 10 and say, now if you can obey these, then you get to go? And so we looked at it, and the context says that, that God enters into a covenant with his people, and he says, this is how I want you to live, not so that you can live perfectly and go to heaven, because that's not possible. And all of this is going to point, all of the Old Testament is pointing to a mediator, to one who would come and who would actually be able to do what we could not, and, and that's Jesus. And so all of these commandments uh, are pointing towards one who would sacrifice his life in place of ours. And so this is not ever, was, it was never meant to be for the people of Israel, nor for us. Man, we got to obey these things or else. God says, I want you to obey these things so that all nations would see who I am. So that they would see my goodness and, and, and my faithfulness and my kindness and my mercy and my love. And then I want you to treat each other in a way that is so different from all other nations. All other nations, you're not going to abuse others, you're not going to use them for your own gain, but you're going to treat them with honor and respect. And so that's where these Ten Commandments come out of. And it's just so important for us to recognize that because sometimes we look at it and we go, well, the Old Covenant is irrelevant, but the Old Covenant, well, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5.17, do not... Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of this was pointing to the fact that what we could not do, Jesus was going to do on our behalf. The Ten Commandments are a way of showing us just how far we fall short of God's holiness and of God's perfect obedience. We... We can look at it so simply and we can go, man, you shall not steal. And we used that, that example last week. Is, but when you're a little, little kid and you don't really understand some of those things and you take something that doesn't belong to you 
Or when you say something that you shouldn't and, you, and you've lied to someone, it's like already we're guilty. And so the Ten Commandments show us, look, look, this is never meant to be about live a perfect life so you can go to heaven. You can't live a perfect life. I can't live a perfect life. But there is one coming who will, and his name is Jesus. He dies on the cross. He becomes our, we call it the substitutionary atonement. He steps into our place. He takes our punishment for our sins. And then he says that that offer now of salvation is, is for you to embrace. Will you say, God, I, I will follow after you, not in a legalistic way to try and earn my own salvation, but out of gratitude that you made a way when there wasn't a way. And the reason I say this all is because I think a misunderstanding of the Old Testament really makes it so that often we look at it as irrelevant. But here, in, I'm going to read you two passages in the Old Testament that, that show this to be true. The prophet uh, Ezekiel says this in chapter 36, 26, and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, Ezekiel was prophesying, saying, you can't do this. But God's going to make a way. He's going to give you a new spirit to allow you to do that. He's going to give you a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the new covenant given. All of this, all the prophets, they wrote this and they understood this is never about you being good enough to go to heaven. This is about Jesus who would be good enough for you to go to heaven. Jesus, who would live a perfect life on our behalf. And so that means this, is should we obey the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Because it shows how to honor God and how to honor each other. But we don't obey the Ten Commandments as some kind of a list that at home we have our little, you know, the things that I've checked off, so I've done good enough. That's never, that never was the point. It's through grace alone that we're saved. And so these Ten Commandments are kind of the basics that are given. But now as we move forward, as you can imagine, if you kind of read through them last week, and you went, is, is this all there is to govern the people? It's just these ten things? Well, what about some of the more nuanced issues that exist in our culture and our time, uh, in both then and, and now? Is Don't we need more information than this? And, and that's what the next three chapters are all about is, God clarifies and, and gives a little more detail to some of these rules and, and then speaks into a cultural context that is thousands of years ago that we have to understand is very different than today. And so some of the stuff we're going to struggle with is, is more wording than anything because if we read it in its context, we're actually going to see some really, really good things. But there's going to be some words that are in there that we're going to have certain assumptions that come to our mind that we need to understand that we're thousands of years later. 
So the beginning at the end of uh, chapter 20, again, so the Ten Commandments started with these are the way you're to relate to God, and then these are the ways in which you're to relate to others, is the same thing happens here. So he gives us some laws about altars and how to kind of build these altars and what you're supposed to do with them. And, and again, all of this is meant to remind them you're not a, poly, you're not a, you're not a polytheistic nation anymore. There's, there's no, not that they ever were, but they were in Egypt where that was normal. There's not many gods and you, you build different altars to different gods, but there's one God. And so God's saying this is, is I'm going to give you the regulations about how to build these things just to see will you be obedient to me or will you adopt other cultural practices and, and kind of tie me together with other gods? And God says, that's not how I want you to do it. And so he gives them these, these specific rules. And, and you can read those 20, 22 to 26. What we're going to focus on here is the beginning of chapter 21. Because this is the most difficult, at least initially, probably text in, well, maybe even in the Old Testament. Here's chapter 21. First verse and a half says this. Now, therefore, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, and right there we go, hold on. That, that goes against kind of every moral principle that we kind of have. And, and it should, and you should get troubled when you read that. And you should want to seek for clarity and context in this. And so I want you to just try and set aside just, just for a moment our idea of, of slavery and, and what this meant. Because as we're going to read and as we're going to see, is God's intent for this is very different than what probably your and my first thought was when we read that, when you buy a slave. And so let me just give you a little bit of context here. Is at this point in time, the, the number one, like far and away, the biggest reason why anyone would enter into slavery, and we'll talk about some of the implications of this in the coming chapters here, but is because of debt incurred to them for either things that they did or things that their animals or their property kind of things that happened, and they owed to someone else something that they could not pay for. And so someone would say, you know what, I, I can't afford to pay for that, and, and, but there's got to be some kind of justice here. And so they would sell themselves into slavery, but only for six years. They would work for that person for six years, and then in the seventh year, God commanded, you will let them go and they will be free. And I know it doesn't feel like it yet, but as we read this, you're going to see, is that God's intent here was not slavery in a sense of where you would oppress or where you robbed them of their dignity or their value, is they were entering into a relationship with you to repay a debt that they owed to you. But what you see is really interesting is if you read verses uh, four, sorry, 5 and 6 of chapter 21. It says this, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I, do, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. This is actually the first time we read about kind of the earring aspect of it. So if you have earrings, this is actually where this comes from, interestingly enough. And so you can see right away here, it's like, well, why would a slave ever say, no, I don't want to go free, but I love my master and I want to stay here? Well, obviously, because it's very different than the context in which we immediately think of. 
In fact, all through these chapters, there's going to be a refrain, and I'll read it a couple of times throughout this morning, but it's, it's, you shall not oppress either the Hebrew or the sojourner that is with you, because you were in Egypt as slaves, and you were oppressed. And you will never do that. You will give dignity and honor, and you, were, you will care for. Even when somebody sells themselves into your service because they have a debt to pay you, you will treat them with dignity and value because they are created in the image of God, and they are loved by God the same as you. And so we might, in our time now, look at this and go, why wouldn't God just say, you know, don't have slaves. Slaves are wrong. Slaves are bad. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a hard question to wrestle with, except to remind us of this. All through the Old Testament, right from the beginning, is God is constantly entering into a very broken world and a very broken culture, and he's constantly elevating the value and the dignity of those that every other culture suppressed and said, you don't have value. In fact, in the New Testament, and you might remember this from from a few... uh, a few months back, but in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is kind of wrestling with, with this idea of slavery. And he says, you know, if, if you are a slave and you can gain your freedom, then, then do it. You should absolutely do it. But he goes on to clarify that that shouldn't be your primary goal because whether you're a slave or whether you're free, the most important thing to, to, for you should be to remember that you're not a slave to sin, but you're, you belong to God. And so whether you're free or whether you're not, here's how how you should live. Here's how you can honor God in what you do and in how you live. And ultimately, that you would show others, you know, why do you live that way? Why do you submit yourself to that? Why why don't you defend yourself more? And the Christian can say, because I don't need to defend myself because God has defended me. Now, he goes on to clarify, but, you know, if you can gain your freedom, do it because that's better. And then in the book of Philemon in the New Testament, that's kind of Paul's uh, one-page letter that many of us kind of overlook and don't ever read. But within that is very clear he's saying, if you're a Christian, there is a new way to view people and we're no longer going to treat people as slaves. We're we're just going to forgive. And that's going to cost us greatly, but that is a reminder of the price that Christ paid for us. And so when we read ancient texts like this and they make us very uncomfortable, first of all, they should, and that's okay because we're importing a a modern reading or an understanding of, of certain terminology where God's trying to say all through this, you will not oppress. You will give them dignity and you will give them honor. And that goes entirely against what we think of when we think of slavery, doesn't it? And so we just need to step back and, and try and really read these in which they are. And in verse 7, there's another kind of confusing verse where, where uh, it says, well, let me read it. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, and now you're thinking, okay, why would, why would a father ever do that? That, that seems crazy. Is this, is this for some kind of, well, I don't know. You could fill in the blank however you want. Well, if you really read into this and you find out, here's the issue, is, is you see this actually in Genesis 29 already, is often people, due to their poverty, would sell their daughters as a second wife, uh, like Zilpah and Bilhah in Genesis 29. They would sell them to a, a, a wealthy family so that their daughters would not experience exploitation, but they would sell them into that family knowing that they would be cared for and that they would have a chance moving forward that they wouldn't die of hungers, that they wouldn't have uh, 
these exploitative things happened to them because they were with a wealthy and a well-to-do family. And so again, there's assumptions in there is that when you were selling your daughter into that, you were going, I'm going to provide for her in the best way that I know how so that she's safe. And again, that goes backwards to what we think of slavery as. And so we need to kind of step out of our modern context of understanding that and realize what God was calling them here is that if somebody sells themselves to you to, to right a debt that has been wronged, then that's... You're, you're going to do that, but do not exploit them. Do not treat them harshly, but give them the dignity and the value that they're due. I think that's all I'm going to say about um, this, the first few verses here in 21 about slavery. But, but I just want you to, maybe when you go home and you just kind of read this through, is see how many times you see that word and it makes you uncomfortable, but then how many other times it says you will not oppress the Hebrew or the foreigner. You will not treat them the way that you were treated in Egypt. You will treat them, as verse 5 and 6 say, in such a way that the, the, the slave says, you know what? My life is way better serving and working for you and being part of your family than it is on my own. In fact, it says if the slave loves their master. The next set of rules in verses 12 to 32 are all about what to do uh, if somebody is unintentionally killed or, or killed through an accident. And so if you kind of think through all those scenarios, is don't we have those same laws and rules in, in today's world? Is there's consequences when somebody loses a life, but there's more serious consequences when it was intentional. And so there's all kinds of scenarios that, that are painted here. Uh, in unique ways. In fact, in verses 22 to 25, there's a really another uh, kind of odd, at first glance anyway, uh, story where it says, okay, if two men are fighting, you know, they're, they're having a, a physical altercation, and somehow a pregnant woman becomes in the crossfires, and she is hurt, or the baby is hurt, or maybe both of them are hurt, th- then here's what you're going to do. And, and, and when you read it at first, you're like, when, when, when two men come to fight together and a, and a pregnant woman is hurt, this doesn't make any sense to me. And here's the point, is what God is trying to teach his people is that all life has value. Even the life of the unborn. Because God has, as according to David in Psalm 139, is God has knit them together in their mother's womb. God has placed his image upon them. And so there are going to be consequences when you cause death, even if it's someone who is not yet born. If it's, he even goes as far as to say, even if your animal kills somebody, there's going to be consequences for that. Because you are supposed to be very cautious and careful about your property, about, about how you kind of farm your land. And if, if your, he even says, even if there's a pit that, that you dig and you don't tell your neighbor about it, and your neighbor's animal walks into it and is killed, then you're going to make restitution for that too. Simply put is, you are to not be like people uh, in the other nations. You are going to be people that care for and that honor one another, uh, everyone. There's a very kind of familiar principle that's taken out of this. It's the first time we see this in verse 24. This is in the context of, of if a woman or the child or both are hurt or killed. It says this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, 
hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And again, we use that eye for an eye principle to make it say what the text is not intending to say here. What it's intending to say here is there is extreme consequence for you if you take the life of another. And so scholars pretty much universally agree that the point was not if you cut someone's hand off, then they came to cut your hand off. The point was there needs to be justice. And when wrong is done, then, then however we can quantify that. And, and so he talks about this with, with there'll be judges and they'll come and they'll determine how to make wrong right. And usually that was with some kind of a monetary issue. Is if, if your oxen was killed or, or, if, or if someone that was in your family was killed, now, again, you can kind of wrestle this through and go, okay, so somebody kills one of my family members, and, and so they give me a sum of money. That doesn't, that doesn't make it all better. But here's the question. Can anything make that better? Right? And so some people would go, okay, if, if let's say, my child is killed, and so now your child should be killed so that somehow there's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Does that make you feel any better, knowing that someone else is some, another parent lost their child? That's not the point of it. And, and Jesus argues this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount where he, he very clearly goes, look, you've misunderstood this. It wasn't eye for an eye. It, it's about showing honor and dignity to people even when they wrong you. And that's where Jesus' famous lines of turn the other cheek come into play. Jesus says, you as a Christian, you should not be seeking vengeance because God will do that for you. In this context here, God was trying to say, look, you're a brand new people, and I'm going to teach you how to live differently than the rest of the world. You're going to honor each other. You're not going to have these things. These are wrong. Well, unfortunately, we see that all too often, the Israelite people in the coming chapters and all the way through the Old Testament choose to do it their own way. As I said, then there's some laws about restitution and what to do if an animal dies or if your animal kills another animal, your animal accidentally even might kill someone else. And, and so it, it goes as far as to say, you know, if your animal kills a person, okay, there's consequence for that and here's how that's going to look. But if that animal has been known to kill someone before or has been unruly and you haven't been able to kind of keep in control, there's worse consequences. Because then you have negligence because you knew that there was danger and did nothing about it. Maybe in today's world, I'll give you a more practical example, and I'm sure you don't have to say whether this has happened to you, but I feel like it's happened to many of us. How many of you, no, okay, maybe, well, I'll just ask, because it's not offensive at all. How many of you bought a car that was just awful? Anybody? A few of us? And how many of you bought it assuming that it might actually be a good car? How many were told it was a good car? And then you got home and it was a piece of junk. Right? There's this sense that we know where it's like, well, I went and I bought it and they told me it was good and now this has happened. We had this was one car we bought. We were promised it's in very good shape. Uh, I wish I had Ernie back in those days to come with me to tell me it wasn't. Turns out they had turned the odometer back. Turns out they had done all kinds of illegal things. That thing was in and out of the shop more often than not. And there was this sense like we, we sat there in our home, me and Shayla, going like, where is the justice? Right? Like we're just really frustrated. But then in the same token, we go, but this is the world that we live in. People take advantage. People know that what they're selling you is not right, not good, not going to work. 
But once that bill of sale is signed, it's like, too bad, your fault. What God's saying here is, this is not how you're going to act, people of Israel. You know, not that they had cars back then, but you're not going to sell a bad car to your neighbor. Specifically, they talk more about, you know, oxen and donkeys and things like that. But you will not sell a, a sick animal that you know is sick, claiming it's not. Because that's taking advantage of your brother, and you are to live very differently than that. In verse 22, there's all these uh, verses about social, kind of social justice laws. And so I'm going to read another one that's very strange. But there's a context here, so try not to be offended too quickly. But it sounds awful at first glance. It was verse 16 and 17 of 22. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And you're like, what the heck is going on here? It sounds exploitive. It's sa- well, okay. When you really dive into I'm going to read what Kenneth Harris, commentator, says, because this is helpful. He says, this rule relates to the practice of a man paying a bride price to his father-in-law in order to marry his virgin daughter. The consequence here focuses on the responsibility of the man to provide, both through marrying the woman, unless the father utterly refuses, and unless he, you know, is not a good person, and by paying her father. So, so in other words, here's the thing is there was specific cultural principles of when you wanted to marry someone. There was a betrothal thing that was supposed to happen, and there was kind of this this pattern of of how this was to be so that both these people were honored, but, but even more so because God is saying both marriage and sex has a very specific context which it's meant to be in, and it's meant to be in a place of honor. And so in this specific example, it is if the man refuses to do this, but is not going to live honorably, but then goes and, and sleeps with someone who is not his wife, then there's consequences for him. Now, he makes the point here that the, the father-in-law may refuse because this man may have violated this girl or may have done it unconsensually. But there's also the, on the other side, where they could have been consensual, they just were not willing to do things the correct and proper way. And if they weren't, then there was massive consequence for that. In other words, God's saying this, Marriage and sex should be held in honor and should be done the way that I have given it to you, not just because you can't wait. Not because you want to just enter into a a, a sexual relationship with someone outside of the context of marriage. That is not how this is meant to be. The way it's talked about and even the wording in it, you might not get that at first. But again, If you picked up any book that was hundreds or maybe thousands of years old and read it, you would probably be very confused by some of the cultural practices and the norm things of those days. The way in which they did things, the way in which they talked about those things. And so this is where it takes a lot of homework if you really want to understand Old Testament law code. If you want to read and study it, you got to go to, man, so many different commentators, so many different experts, and figure this out because some of it just seems so strange and bizarre that you read it and you go, this, like, it, it sounds awful. I don't even want to enter into this. But when you start down this trail, what you'll see is that God is continually trying to say, I will uphold the right of the innocent party, 
There will be justice when things are not done correctly. And he says, I have, decide, or I have given you marriage, sex, um, even the farming, the animals that you have, the land that you have, and, and how you were to own land, even all of these things. God is saying, I'm going to create the way in which that they should go so that it benefits the entire community and each person individually. Here's the problem. And it's no different now than it was back then is people want to exploit and people want to make themselves rich at the cost of others. And suddenly honesty, integrity, fighting for the case of the needy, none of those things become important. It all becomes about the dollars. How much money can I have? Can I own more land than, than this person does? Well, there was rules about that even. And if you owned land from somebody else because they couldn't pay for it, well, at some point, it actually went back to that original family because you were never supposed to just have something that belonged to somebody else. There was maybe a debt that needed to be resolved, but once that debt was resolved, it was supposed to go back in the first place. It's, again, I've said this too many times, but God is trying to say, you will live differently than the world. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. How you and I treat others matters because how you and I treat others says a lot about how we view and understand who God is. If I exploit someone else to gain advantage, I'm saying that that person doesn't have value or dignity in the eyes of God, but I do. God says you're not going to live that way. Now, unfortunately, by the time the New Testament comes along, Many of the, the Jewish religious leaders have lost sight of this, and they have laws to do with the Hebrew people, and then they have laws to do with people who weren't of the Hebrew people, and they were much, much less. And they were allowed to really do some things that God said right here in the text, no, you will not treat sojourners that way. And remember, if, maybe if you remember the book of Ruth, is this is that example where other nations will come to you for protection for help, uh, maybe because they've heard of the one true God and they want to worship him, and you are to welcome them in and you are to treat them as family. This is the way that God has called us to live, not just the Hebrew people back then, but today as well. Chapter 23, verses 1 to 3 says this, you shall not spread a false report, you shall not join hands with wicked men to be malicious or to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. But then on the flip side, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. God's saying this. We already said don't lie, but because that's not clear enough, let's make it even more clear. Is don't misrepresent information. Don't misrepresent other people. Don't just join the party of the big group uh, or the more influential people so that you can kind of get some gain from them. Is simply what is right is how you were to be. What is honorable is how you are to be. Is you are to act with integrity and the words that you are to speak are to be true. But he also says, but don't let the pendulum swing too far on the other side where, where you give advantage whether to the rich or to the poor. Is you should simply be what is right is right regardless of circumstance. Ends again, verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. 
Now, a lot of these laws in there are about wealth, and I think the reason that that is is because wealth seems to be the thing that draws men's hearts away from God more than anything else. We don't have, so we take. We kill, we abuse, we hurt, we rob, because we want more. Forgetting that it costs a great deal for us to have something that doesn't belong to us. And God says, this is not how you will be. Verse 10, it gives on to a few laws about Sabbath. And again, this is really interesting. This is verse 10 and 11 of chapter 23. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. That the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. The Sabbath principle continues to come in here, but, but notice the context. Now, some people will try and argue, uh, and the rationale might be true, but the context is wrong. Is going If you work the land for six years and then you give it a rest for one year, you'll actually get greater longevity out of it. The principle of that's probably true. It seems to make sense in most things. And, and God is trying to teach them to be a Sabbath people, not about only producing, but about spending times and seasons of rest. And, but, but notice why it says here, but the seventh year sh- you shall let it rest. Why? So that the poor of your people may eat. Let me say it this way. In other words, nothing that you have is yours alone. Even your fields, you are to remember they belong to God. And God wants to use them for good, not just your good, but for the good of all. So again, you see this in the book of Ruth. This was a principle that was practiced and sojourners would come in and and they would go kind of work in in those fields. And and not only in the Sabbath principle, but there was a rule of, of don't even harvest it right to the end. Like if you had a combine, you know, back then, it's like put your auto steer on like six feet from the end and leave that there. Because there'll be poor people in your community that need food and they should have an opportunity to go and to work for their own food. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so again, some of these things may may seem strange, but what God's trying to say, and again, we talked about this, the number one reason people ended up in slavery in the first place was they sold themselves for those six years because they had debt that they had incurred. Well, God's going, okay, I'm going to even try and make it, I'm going to give you rules in place so that that doesn't even happen to begin with. So that even those that don't have anything can still uh, forage for their food, I guess, is the way it, it's listed here. That they would be able to go out and they would be able to find the things that they need. We're going to talk about this in the summer. We're going to do a few weeks on stewardship. But what I'm going to challenge us with there and what I think the Bible is challenging us with here is that nothing that you own is yours alone. First of all, it belongs to God in the first place. But second of all, it's meant for the good of others. And so if we're just consumed with, man, I I, want to, whether it's my money, whether it's my time, whether it's the gifts that God has given me, whatever it is, if I'm using those solely for myself and not for the greater good of the community, not for the greater good of my church family, then then why why am I even trying to use them? Then in the last few verses, there's commands about what to do as they enter the promised land. And we're not going to talk about those this morning because we're going to get there in a few weeks. But the point of all of these laws as you read them through, and, and I would ask you to kind of sit down somewhere this week and read through these chapters. 
And then read through them again and see how many times you see you will not oppress a sojourner. You will not treat your brother with contempt. You will be honorable. And you will give them dignity and value. All of these laws, right from Exodus 20, which is kind of like a, the condensed version, all the way to more and more detailed laws, are meant to be first about showing who the one true God is to all nations so that they would see his, man, he's calling you. How do I say this? That when someone who serves another God would see the God of the Hebrews, they would go, this God has created me in his image and loves me and has given me value and dignity. That's who I want to serve. Not the God of this or the God of that who requires that I offer my firstborn in sacrifice so that the rains come. God was meant to be very different, and so these rules were meant to show those nations that. They were meant to be given to the Hebrews to say, don't get drawn back into this polytheistic culture and nation that you've been saved out of. And how you treat each other, <coughs> excuse me, how you treat others, how you treat the rest of your fellow humans, it matters. So live with integrity, live with honesty, and recognize that God has created them in his image, and so you owe them your respect. How we live matters. How they lived matters. Jesus says it this way again back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice Jesus doesn't say so that they would see your good works that earn you salvation. He says, all of your good works that, that you're doing, the way that you treat your fellow mankind, the way that you honor God, all of it is so that others would see those works and give glory to God. And go, that's the God that I want to serve because he is the only true God that is just and that gives value and dignity to all. So again, just like the Ten Commandments, sh- should we obey these things? Well, it only depends on how legalistically you're trying to obey them. We have to remember that we live thousands of years later in a very different culture. And so the principles that come from these laws are 100% applicable to us. You should give respect and dignity and honor to your fellow humans. You should not exploit them. You should not use them for your advantage so that you can gain from their loss. The specifics of how that is accomplished, well, that's very different than the culture in which these laws are written to. And that's why I think the Ten Commandments are so plainly and simply worded, don't kill people. Okay, that, that goes from the day one all the way to the end. But then what about unintentional things that have happened? What about when an animal kills them? What about when somebody gets hurt on your property? All these things that we start to get more and more complicated in our culture is we should, as Christians, we should look at them and go, this is not about protecting my money. This is not about the lawsuits that I might incur. This is about how do I treat mankind with dignity and honor? And how do I show that God is the one that I trust, not my money? That's the context that these are found in. That's the context that we should use them within. And so when you read ancient laws that sound very strange, maybe even offensive, I just challenge you to read them, study them, 
try and understand them in the context that they're written, and then see what principles, what truths would God have us use of those laws in today's world? Because every person that you meet has been created in the image of God, and God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. Let's pray. God, as we consider some of these ancient laws written so long ago in, in such a different culture, it's, it's hard for us to even process and understand them sometimes. Sometimes on an initial reading, it, it sounds just wrong or unjust. But I pray that you would give us the motivation and the, and the perseverance to read and to study them through and to see what are you trying to teach us that we could use in today's world as well. God, I pray that we would be people that honor our fellow mankind. Not just those that we love and those that are kind to us, but that those, as, as Jesus says, to pray for those who persecute you, to love your enemies. Would we treat others with the lavish grace that you have treated us with? Would we care for one another and would we not try to seek a benefit from their loss? God, even thinking through these principles, there's so many practical applications to our daily lives that we may not even like very much. But I pray that they would hit home for us and that we would recognize that we're going to treat every person that we meet in the understanding that you have created them in your image and that you love them. Help us to submit under your ways of doing things because your ways are better than our ways. You have a far, you have the full perspective and we have a tiny, tiny little piece of it. May how we live and how we treat each other would the nations around us, would our community around us, would they see that and would they go, man, that's the kind of God that I want to serve. Just as Jesus said, so that they would see our good works and they wouldn't, they wouldn't praise us, they wouldn't be amazed at us, but they would honor you in heaven. That's our prayer. That's what we ask for today. So God, give us the strength to do these things. We love you. Go with us today now. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. There, there are snacks, yes? Is there a snack person today? Yes, snacks are here. Uh, so head on over and, and just get some food. And Oh, and I've forgotten something. Oh, right, I forgot. We're going to... We're going to pack a little bit of our AGC packets for, for the conference, uh, kind of a, a table or somewhere at the back here. If you'd like to stay and help us with that, that would be very appreciated, um, but there's no obligation, of course. If you're visiting, please come and get some food. You don't have to come help us do the packages, but please come get some food and, and just share and, and get to know each other, and we hope you have a wonderful week and look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.